Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Michael Finley really wants us to confront art directly, out of our own experience, avoid the wall tags, skip the discussion. In this podcast, we discuss how that applies to Instagram and the business of selling art. Michael, your first book was uh, called The Value of Art, and it was an extended explanation for many people about how prices come to be, what are the social forces, economic forces that determine prices both publicly and privately. Your new book is called um, Seeing Slowly, and it comes from, if I'm correct, a section of the first book where you implored people to spend time in museums, sit in front of a painting for, I think you said half an hour or more. So I thought instead of, if you could sort of explain to us a little bit the background of how one book leads into the other, and then we can talk about the thesis. The value of art was really written in three sections to indicate the three reasons that I felt um, people I knew collected art. They collected um, with, with a degree of interest and investment, which I, I didn't think it was, it was necessarily bad at all, that they should hope things went up in value. They collected for social prestige um, and, and, and for social activity too, not just prestige. And they collected for the third reason was for the essential value of art. The essential value being what it is, what it gives you. Nothing to do with showing it off, nothing to do with its commercial value. And it, I guess the, as I was dealing with that, which is the most abstract, the most complex, the most human, I, it led me to a consideration along with many, many conversations with people that I know who are outside of, of, of the cowled art world, as has been uh, sometimes uh, referred to, who, who, who just don't get modern art, who, don't, who, who will never buy it, um, who are... Uh, read headlines about $100 million paid for paintings. Um, they're intimidated by that, or they're baffled, or they think it's very funny. Um, they may have had a course in college that probably bored them stiff. Um, so there are, there are kind of two audiences that I see. One are, and this, there may be an age issue here, an, an older audience that is um, that feels that if they're going to engage with modern art, they need a lot of information. They need to be fed information by museums, by people like me, by people like you, because it has meaning that has to be extracted and they have to understand it. Then there's another audience, an audience that I see um, on my visits to museums. I see this audience, I think, when I go to um, and attend and actually work at some of the larger art fairs, an audience of younger people 
who are, are anxious to engage with what they consider to be uh, famous works of art, as if they were themselves celebrities, the works of art, and they do this by seeking them out in you know, exhibitions or people's booths, spotting the Picasso, spotting the Basquiat, spotting the Warhol, taking a photograph of it or a selfie with it, and, and moving on. And, and I, I've, I've watched them, and I sometimes restrain myself from asking them. And th these are not people who are, who are buyers. They're not, why don't you look at it? <laughs> because they haven't looked at it. They've, they've noted for themselves and their friends that they are in its presence. Um, so I, f I feel that there are huge opportunities being missed by many, many people in our culture who seem to be drawn to modern art, but once they are in its presence, they don't, they don't feel confident and they don't give themselves permission to engage with it in what I call a non-prophylactic manner. So I've written this book. Hopefully, it will reach the general reader, or what Jed Pearl once referred to as the average museum-goer, whoever that is. And I believe there is such a thing. And um, that I think that there are millions of them. Um, and basically encourage them to suspend their reliance on information and to expand their own ability with what they are bringing to it from their life, their heart, their brain, their mind, uh, to make... Um, to have enjoyment, and to make critical judgments. Not critical judgments in an academic way, but to be able to say, I really like A, I don't like B. Even though B may be flying very, very high uh, as, a, as, a, as a celebrity work of art. Let me just stop you there for a second and, and go to the heart of what I think is so radical about this book you make a, a basically an extended two, 300-page argument for going and uh, looking at art cold, having a direct experience with the art and letting your interaction guide you into something further, which is probably cutting through just about everything that has surrounded art over the last, I don't know, how many years you want to go back, but certainly the museum culture, the gallery culture, the art market culture that presupposes that prophylactics that you talked about just now of knowing the names, of knowing um, the prices, of knowing the backstory, of having the art speak, uh, knowing the movements, everything about identifying. So that has created, I think, this uh, been there, done that, got the selfie kind of approach to art. And you're saying, oh, oh, forget saying, you're, from your 
great deal of experience in all of these worlds, giving permission to people that none of that matters, that the first thing they should do is really look at the work of art. Yes, I agree with everything, except I would say that when you come to the work of art with information or seeking information, that is actually cold. I think when you come to it uh, as if out of the womb of your mind and heart, you are coming to it hot and you allow it to radiate heat. I am not at all against information. I'm, I'm absolutely not. But I think we have a problem. My problem is with the cart and the horse. I think that the horse is the work of art. The horse can be, the horse can ride itself. The horse can be ridden by you. The horse can pull a huge cart of art history and art market information. But if you put that in front of it, the horse doesn't move very far. What the, the, I don't know if this is really accurate, but from my experience, I, I love music, okay? And I have very, very Catholic tastes in music, as my family will tell you. They might, I might, they might find me listening to uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Miles Davis, the Brandenburg Concerto, uh, uh, country music. I mean, I, th there's not much I actually don't like one way or another, and I have favorites. I know nothing about music. I know nothing about it technically. I don't know how it's made. I can't play a note. I can't sing. Um, I, I don't even, I mean, after years, I remember sometimes the names of the artists, the musicians, the pieces, but I don't even write them down. But I don't think that in any way inhibits my deep enjoyment of music, of music that I like and play over and over, music that I hear my 17-year-old daughter playing, and, and some of it, I, I, I get that too, and I like it. I say, who's that? I enjoy it, and we turn it up in the car. And some I don't like. But <laughs> so... Um, I don't know why we cannot treat art of the last hundred years or so in the same manner. In other words, we come to it, we sample it, we walk into a museum or a gallery, we stand not against the wall, but away from the wall, and one of something or other may say, hey, hey, come on over, look at, look at me. Let the art choose you. You have a great anecdote in the book about a friend who takes their young daughter to a Fauve exhibition to get her interested in art and art history. And she walks into the exhibition and says something to the effect of, Daddy, I don't know how this is supposed to work, but I'm just going to stand here in the center and let the colors come at me. That's exactly, that's a, that's a very accurate, uh, yeah, that's, that is the anecdote. And that, that, that I, I heard quite a long time ago, and it, it, it has never failed to resonate with me. Um, also, um, I think this may, I, I may relate this in the book, and it may have come from Mark Stevens' great uh, de Kooning biography, but de Kooning, with, with his 
friends, maybe with Franz Klein, would go to the Met often. Uh, they would go to the Met with the idea of looking at one painting. And it, it wasn't necessarily a modern painting, a 20th, most likely to be a, uh, a, an old master. And, and they would look at the painting together for quite a long time. And then they'd go out maybe on a bench outside in Central Park and they'd talk about it. And, and de Kooning says, uh, I think it's a marvelous line, if you see too many paintings, you get all mixed up. <laughs> now, this is de Kooning tell, telling us that. And, and it, he's right. If you go to the Uffizi or the Met or the, the Martin and you have one day, You'll, you'll come out, I think, you know, you may, have, you may have checked all your ticks, but I don't know how you could have really engaged with anything. The book, and I don't want to be reductive, but in many ways, the book is you rebutting all of the um, things that people would say uh, uh, as why they need to either look at the label or read the wall text or have read the review beforehand uh, and all. And I, it makes me wonder whether part of the problem isn't the museums themselves. I don't want to denigrate museums. No, neither do I. What has grown up over the last, uh, you know, 50 years has been a, a, a culture of teaching in museums that's been fantastic, but it is now, in many ways, overwhelming. You, you are uh, given wall text, you are led through as your way to understand whatever the show is about. Uh, about. It has its high points and, you know, contrapoints and, and so on. But all of this is kind of, and you're, there's usually a flow of bodies that it's hard yeah. to, you know, fight against to swim yeah. upstream or go in your own way. And, and you're advocating uh, people try and have a more personal relationship with a work of art, whichever it may be. And I almost wonder if that's also an advocacy for people to own art themselves, that the, the personal or private setting is maybe more conducive to doing some of the things you're talking about, fully recognizing that that's not exactly, you know, possible for a, a lot of people. But there's also a lot of art out there that may not be museum quality, but still has, you know, these kinds of elements to it. That, that's interesting. There, there, was, there was a chapter which um, a number of people, including my publisher, uh, suggested I, I I leave out because it was it was perhaps too commercial, which was basically exploring how small amount of money you actually had to have if to be to be a collector you could do it with a few hundred bucks every once in a while. Um, so I I do think that the the traffic that museums create and upon which they judge themselves in terms of uh, attendance, you know, box office, whether it's financial or just the numbers of people that the art newspaper rates, you know, every year, um, that this mitigates against um, the individual experience. Although, as, as we both know, if you took the lid off the Metropolitan, you would see the, 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 the thousands of people in the, in, in the exhibition of Balenciaga or whatever, and there's nobody in the absolute magnificent uh, 
new Islamic rooms where, where I, I always go. I know, know nothing about Islamic art. I probably never will, but I just love being there because I don't know, it just feed, feeds my soul. So when you can be with something quietly, stuff happens. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I hate to keep coming back to the kind of romantic analogy, but when you are with another person in a quiet setting, you can get to know them. And I would add, if you spend time with a person not saying anything, you may get to know them better than in, in you know, rapid conversation. Well, yes. Uh, if you've read their, their, their biography, you're bringing that with you and you're comparing what you've read to what you see. I, I think that we, you said something very interesting about the last 50 years. If we go back 50 years beyond that, um, we find out that the word empathy, which is now, um, now very much part of the, 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 the lexicon of psychology and, 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 and self-help and in our daily life, actually became, came, out of art, came out of an art historical context. And it had to do with what Rilke called in-seeing, seeing into a work of art rather than inspecting it. So um, this uh, idea, and Duchamp also had the idea that the work of art really uh, doesn't exist until you or I engage with it. it. It's inert. And we bring it to life. And what we bring to it, and I'm not talking about information, is really, really important to its continued life. It's wonderful to know what other distinguished and clever people thought about a work of art. I don't dismiss that at all. And if you're buying works of art, please get information about, about value. I'm, I don't dismiss this at all. What I'm saying is that if, the, if you arrive with a lot of baggage, and it is baggage, try to put some of it down, lighten your load. And one of the exercises I, I, I suggest is to imagine, uh, let's say Picasso has just finished Demoiselle d'Avignon. He hasn't shown it to anybody, right? You're the first person, right? And he says, come on in, I've got something I want you to see. You've no idea. You go into the studio and you see this painting and there's no history to it. You may know this guy who did it. You know what year you are in. You know the size of it because you're looking at it. What more do you need? Let's say there's nothing, nothing, you know nothing else about it. It is, that's actually the privilege you're given when you walk into the Museum of Modern Art to see it. That, that, that's huge. You, you're, with, you're with it as somebody was when they saw it. Now, what I think you do not need to know, it's probably no longer on the label, but it used to be on the label, 
is the fact that the figure in the bottom right corner used to be a man. Now, I don't dismiss the value of that, that information. There are lots of people who, who find it interesting, art historians, conservators. But if you have 10 minutes in your life to look at Demoiselle d'Avignon, do you need to spend any of that time learning that they're used, learning about something that is not in that painting? I mean, I'm being a bit glib here, but basically, you know, I, I think that, that it, again, I'd say the, paint, the art comes first. It has to precede the, the information. I don't think you're being glib at all. I think part of the, and I won't even describe it as a problem, but there has grown up so much assumption that all of this extra knowledge is important. And I don't think you're saying that's not important. Absolutely. I think what you're, you're saying is we've gotten to the point where people come in, they see it, they recognize it, they see the signifiers, name, date, uh, whatever else, whatever room it's in, whether it's in a gallery show or anything else, and they move on before they've actually had a chance to experience the work. And part of what you're doing in the book is taking point by point Yes, what you just said, that information's important, but not important yet for understanding it, or not as substitute for actually sitting in front of the work and coming to it. It's not cold. a substitute. Yeah, and, and, and you also do something, I think, that's very interesting through a couple of sort of, um, uh, you, you've written interior monologues uh, between, I, I guess it's you and the, and the viewer, that are, uh, one, quite entertaining, but two, they, they sort of get at this, is you're not assuming that people will sit there and, you know, the, the, the clouds will part and a, a ray of light <laughs> will come down and they'll be transported. You acknowledge there'll be boredom, confusion, maybe contradictory feelings. Could you talk a little bit about the process of getting from past the label and into the first minute, five minutes, half an hour? I think that uh, my experience has been uh, very much that um, con continued in seeing, even from one minute to five minutes, can radically change the feelings I am having or the feelings that are being offered to me by, by the work of art. Um, and because it, it I'm, I'm certainly no expert in neurology, but I have been told that the first few seconds that you will look at, at, at almost anything the information is coming from your brain, not from your eyes. Your, your eyes are seeing bits of things, and your brain is actually filling in a lot more. If you're looking at a work of art, in order to see it, you have to wait a while so that your, your brain can let go of it, and you can see all of it with your eyes, and then you see more of it. You see into it. I don't mean... You, you solve it as a puzzle. I'm saying it can be delivering more to you. Now, it can also be delivering less, and that's also good because you can say, you know, I've really looked at this, Mona Lisa, <laughs> and 
it doesn't really, I don't know what a P, I don't know, but actually this thing over here that nobody else seems to be looking at, wow, I, that bird or that, 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 whatever it is, is, um, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, I was at the astonishing exhibition of Raphael drawings at the Ashmolean this summer. And um, I, I'm, I, this is way out of my field, but so many people had said, you have to see it. And I, I was lucky enough to be there. Um, and there, there, there's a, there was, I, I came in at early at 10 o'clock, so there weren't a lot of people. And the first drawing, which I think he did when he was 20, which is of a young man, maybe a self-portrait, it was very, very striking. And, and, when, and I, I, what I, I did what I usually do when I counsel other people to do, although if everybody does it, it'll be a problem, which is to go, back through, to go backwards through the exhibition. <laughs> so I did it. I did it. I picked out favorites. Then I went back. And then I went back a third time to this portrait. And that third time, I literally started to lose my breath. There was something, I thought, what the hell is, am I having a, I wasn't really a heart, but I, I felt breathless. It, 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 and it took, I mean, it was stunning, but it was the third time that I, it moved me. It's, it actually kind of almost physically shoved me. And, and I thought, you know, this stuff, this is real. I'm not making this up. I'm not, and I'm, it is not some kind of, um, you know, this is not Zen, although it, it, it helps if you try to clear, it does help if you try to clear your mind and, not, and you, you're not trying to get to the restroom or the cafeteria. You know, it does help a little bit. Um, well, there is that element of, uh, and again, this is not the museum's fault, but with all the people there and with the flow uh, pushing you, it is very hard to sit and just think about and experience one work of art to push through the boredom or the confusion or the you know w whether you like it or, or not. And, and you talk. I mean, you mentioned de Kooning's comments uh, earlier, and you talk in the book a little bit about uh, when you were younger, you know, going to the Met and being able to find an alcove and sit in front of a painting for your lunch hour. And as we both know, many museums, you get off of the the main flow of what's happening, and there are plenty of places you can sit down and and spend some time. Uh, uh, with a work of art. Uh, and it seems like both that and what you just mentioned, going back again and again, maybe not even to the ones that you consciously knew, you know, would have picked out as the ones you would want to go back to, but having the chance to go back, uh, it seems to be one of the important uh, uh, parts of having a real, lack of a better term, experience with the work of art. Yes, if, if there, there's, a, there's a wonderful book um, I'm going to. It may, it, I'm, I'm, it may be by James Elkins. I don't know. I, d I do. I do refer to it. Um, <clears throat> and this man uh, was struck by the painting at the Frick. I think of Saint Francis. And he saw it when he was fourteen or fifteen with his dad, and and he was. He just had, it was just like, he was blown away. But he went back throughout his life, 
you know, every five or 10 years. And he talks about how his relationship, he never forgot that. He never, he never lost that. But it, it evolved. The relationship evolved. He saw more. He felt different. And, and, and this is in this, I mean, when people, I guess, who are lucky enough to, to live with great works of art, um, God forbid they should sell them. <laughs> I'd be out of business if they didn't. But people who have lived with something, a particular painting, when I, when I visit collectors and they've had paintings for several decades, um, they stopped talking about what a great buy it was. They stopped talking about, you know, who they beat out to get it. And they talk about the joy that it's given them, the fact that after 20 years they finally saw that there was something down there in the corner that they hadn't noticed. I mean, it, it, it is amazing. So it, it keeps a great work of art, and I don't mean expensive, <laughs> keeps delivering, it, it will keep, if you, if you let it. Let's talk about what is, I don't even want to use the word great, because there are obviously great works of art, and then there are works that are maybe great for uh, one person or another, uh, and, and that idea of revisiting and having a, a personal relationship with a work, whether it's something you own or just something you have access to, and it doesn't even have to be in your city. I mean, are there people who go visit their favorite Absolutely. works every time they're in Paris, every time their they're... Destination work. Which may not be the, the, the big name work in the thing too. If you know, you probably go to more museums than than most people do. do. And I'm betting there's some uh, out of the way works that you stop by. Straight to them. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned in the book something about when you're talking about sort of seeing things and not so much training your eye, but but that accumulation of visual information and all. all. And I think the question is like what if I'm not right, or what if I, you know, basically sort of what if I don't have good taste in, yes. in this? Can you talk a little bit about what your answer is to that? Well, I would say, first of all, what is, what is fashionable today, and this is true of any time, what is fashionable today and what everybody's talking about today, and what many people are paying very high prices for today, may, may, not, um, uh, may not even be settled in the history books of tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So um, you don't have to align your judgment with, um, with that of, 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 of the, 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 ch the chattering masses. Um, because uh, you, have no, you have no skin in the game. I'm, I'm talking about the average museum goer has no skin in the game, right? Um, so it's going to change anyway. That for 200 years, the Mona Lisa was, 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 was stuck away somewhere, was, was, was out of art history, right? So, so these, things, the, the, these things come in waves. Um, we, we always want to believe ours is a golden age. Ours is certainly a golden age when it comes to the amount of money being spent on art. It is not necessarily a golden age, perhaps in terms of, of the art that's being made. Uh, um, it, it is, I think, a golden age when it, when it comes to the, across the world, more or less, the public's access to great works of art. More and more museums are being built. 
they're not all that expensive to go to. Some of them are absolutely free. So that's a golden age. Um, my basis for what I believe to be personal connoisseurship is created by comparing things, by seeing enough things that you can say, I prefer X to Y. You can see an exhibition of one artist, and all the paintings look more or less alike, but if you look closely and you're drawn in, you will eventually say, my God, but I really think that one's much better than this one. You could see, you can wander through a museum and you could see something from the 12th century, which actually looks very much like, I don't know, that, that shape in that Philip Guston. And, and you say, wow, well, I believe that things that look like each other are connected. I'm not saying they copied each other, but there is, and you can, and you can say, well, I actually, I prefer that to that. I, I like, and, and once you begin to do that, you're creating uh, your ability to make judgments which are critical and they are personal. And if you're with your, your friend, your spouse, your family, or, or whatever, you may not be able to articulate exactly in uh, fancy language why that is, but you get pretty good at saying, no, this, is, this has got much more than that. And, and, and this, is, uh, this, is how you, this is how you educate yourself, I believe. So, so I don't even know if that's redefining connoisseurship. You're using connoisseurship, I think, in a way that um, people may have lost that meaning uh, in the sense that a connoisseur is someone with a large visual experience or vocabulary that they're able to employ. And as you advocate, it's more about what they've seen than all the outside knowledge they can bring to bear. Not that that's irrelevant, but that they are using their eyes. We talk about connoisseurs being able to, you know, look at a painting and, and discuss authorship based on brushstrokes as opposed to the documentary yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, attribution. Yeah, that was the sort of Sherlock Holmes method. Um, that's the mod the modern method, um, which actually, you know, is 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 a reliance on what you're actually seeing. I mean, it sounds dumb, right? Should be what you see, but basically what you're seeing. <clears throat> I don't think that the average museum goer has to worry about: Am I looking at a fake or not? I mean, maybe they are. I mean, sometimes they are, and the museum doesn't even know it. But be that as it may, um, and they don't necessarily need, they don't need they don't need the language of of the historian or the or, or the critic in order to. In fact, it's dangerous. The language is dangerous because the language is likely to create a narrative. Painting, art, most of it maybe some conceptual art aside, is, is language proof. Um, if you can say it, it's not really effective. If you can write, you know, if you can, um, uh, if I can narrate the painting, if I can stand in front of, this is what people do, they stand in front of the painting and they speak the painting to an audience. The, is the painting dumb? Does the painting need you in front of it? 
you're laughing, but I mean, I, I'm laughing because it's a, it's we we denigrate the selfie takers, but it's a verbal selfie, right? It's inserting your knowledge, your uh, expertise in front of a group of people about the painting uh, into their experience of it, just like putting yourself in the picture of the of yes. the painting, rather than and you advocate the, this going to a museum with someone you feel comfortable. Not speaking. <laughs> speaking all the time. You know, not speaking all the time. I used to, I used to, years ago, I had a client, <clears throat> wonderful man, John Powers, um, and his mother, he, he, I mean, he was a seasoned collector. His mother lived in New Jersey, and she had two friends, and they were ladies in their late 70s. And, and I had inherited this job from Ivan Karp, actually, um, he asked me to take them. They came into matinees on Wednesdays, and he asked me to take them to um, to a museum when you know for an hour or whatever before they they went to the matinee, and uh, and 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 they're very very nice ladies. Um, but after a couple of attempts, I I stopped trying to to say anything because they had so much to tell each other. <laughs> <laughs> that we, you know, we walked around and, and, and chatted about this and that. And, but, they, but stuff, you know, they would, have, they would sometimes stop at something and then they'd take it in. Um, so I think that <clears throat> people talking to each other, <clears throat> excuse me, about the art that they have just seen as a family, as a couple, whatever, it's very, it's, it's inspiring, it's exciting, but if you're actually talking over each other and over the work of art and, and, and gaming, that's Picasso. No, that's not. No, that's Brock. No, this 1913. No, no, you don't understand what, what, what synthetic cubism is. I mean, this is nonsense, right? You could do that with a book. You can, you know... You've got the thing there. You've got a few minutes. Why not just drink it in? It's almost as if one of the problems is we confine all of the uh, uh, outside experience of art into the museum or the gallery experience rather than going. I think you use uh, the example of a movie. You know, yes, people talk yeah. through movies now and it's, it's annoying, but, you know, uh, it's better to watch the movie and then have dinner later and argue over the plot uh, and the yeah, characters. I liked it. I didn't like it. It sucked. You know, I mean, quite honestly, this is, to me, this is more interesting language. You know, then, 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 then a lot of because it means you've get you've really, you you could get passionate about it. You could say it. I yeah, I liked it, but it makes me miserable. You know, there there are so many shades of emotion and feeling that can be part of an experience of looking at a work of art. It's not just like don't like, um, and when I've been doing annual stints with, with the students at Christie's Education, taking them to works of art and not allowing them to look at the, the labels and then dis, in pairs and then discussing them afterwards. There have been profoundly different reactions to the same work of art, um, you know, by, by, by two different people who've been looking at it for the same length of time in the same place. This raises, I think I know the answer, but it raises an interesting question that I think will occur to people uh, listening to, to this. If you're an advocate of all of that, 
What do you think of art appearing on Instagram? Does that fit into what you're talking here, or is it, uh, you know, not the same thing as experiencing the art? Well, it's certainly not a substitute. It's an easy way to tell somebody, to remind somebody what you're talking about or what you've seen. If I go and I see something and I, I am four days into an Instagram account, I'm not exactly converted, but I'm four days into it. I have 102 followers, slightly less than my dogs, but 102. So, you know, and I'm going very slowly. I will take photographs. I'm sure I'm going to take photographs of things I see in museums and galleries, and I'm going to say something about them, right? And I'm going to hope that maybe that will inspire somebody to go and look at that thing. And I, I, don't think, I don't think that's a bad thing. On the other hand, if they feel they don't need to, because now they've seen it, you know, whatever, three by two inches on a pixelated screen, I'm sorry, you haven't seen it. I've given you, at, at best, a, a slightly enhanced verbal sketch of something. And it's not the thing. It's not remotely the thing. So um, does, the appearance, does the appearance of, of art on social media inspire people to go to museums? I hope so. On the other hand, there are some museums who are um, cultivating the use of social media within the museum. In other words, they are creating, they have programs and technology to make it more exciting, to make the paintings do a dance or make you do a dance. Or somehow, I'm not entirely in favor of this. And I, I, I was not able to mention in the book, but I would have uh, something that occurred just this year. Um, my friend Ulf Kuster at the Beiler Museum, Beiler Foundation in Basel, did an exhibition of Monet in the, in the spring, in this spring. Uh, he's a very, very thoughtful man. And he had this idea to maybe open the museum for an hour or an hour and a half earlier to allow people to go in and meditate. And, you know, like, oh, wacky, you know must be some wacky Swiss idea, right? Do you know, he thought he'd have a few people. There were hundreds of people wanted to do this. There's a photograph online I found of guys, people on yoga mats with Monet's Waterloo. I mean, in front, I mean, spending half an hour, an hour with these, what, I mean, what better way to start your day? I don't know whether they were being, whether they were levitating or whatever they were doing, it didn't matter. He was giving them Quiet, you know, we, well, quiet time. We all need quiet time. Well, what's so funny is that you needed permission to do that. I mean, you can yes. go, you can still go, I think, and open a sketchbook, or even if you have permission, put an easel up and copy yeah. and do that kind of academic work. But the idea that you would roll out a yoga mat in the middle of um, a major museum, <laughs> which 
ought not to be, you know, that much of a problem if you did it the same way that the, someone sketching it is. And, and that, but you need the specific uh, yeah. time and place to be told it's all right to meditate. But you can bring your iPhone, you can wear your audio guide, but you can't have a yoga, but, a, but the, <laughs> the yoga mat's forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> Does Instagram at least do some of that work towards connoisseurship that you were talking about of, uh, I mean, I know you're not, and, and you make this point multiple times in the book, you, seeing the image is not the same thing as seeing the, the, the work, but being familiar with um, the image and, and other images uh, trains the eye. We need information to find things. I mean, we do need the, the we need um, facts. Um, facts and, um, and, and, and reproductions are, are useful uh, navigation, instruments of navigation. Um, I think it's dangerous when, whether it's in a book or an Instagram, where that 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 judgment calls are made when you put two images side by side. I mean, I think art dealers know this. Um, I'm sometimes quite loath to send somebody the image of a painting that I expect them to be interested in because they will not get a sense of its real color, its real texture, its real scale. Um, and they may dismiss it on the basis of a glance at their iPhone when they get the PDF, whatever I've sent them. Whereas if they walked into this room and it was hanging, well lit, on that wall, Oh, they might gasp a little. Oh, I didn't realize it was, it's that big. Oh, it's... We're talking about seeing, but I, I can't help ask you about selling art. You do, when you sell a work to someone, take a fair amount of care in how it's presented for the first time to a client, correct? One does one's best. It is increasingly harder because of technology, because the client or the client's advisor is begging for that thumbnail. I was trying to explain to somebody recently who was asking me whether technology had not speeded up our business. And I said, actually, it has done the opposite because now, especially if I resist sending somebody an image, but I tell them about the painting, the advisor will then text me back and want to negotiate the price or get a condition report and all of this, which usually came after the viewing, if the viewing was successful, all of this goes on and it precedes the moment, which may never arrive, when the client stands in front of the painting and says, oh, I didn't like that at all. Now, um, old school, which I found more efficient and much quicker, was when you called the client, you said, um, that, that 1940s Kandinsky you were looking for, I have something, uh, just came in uh, from another collector. Do you want to come and see it? Um, okay, I'll be with my spouse on Saturday morning. Is that soon enough? I say, fine, you know, that's Saturday morning's great. They come in, 
I spent no time at all, right? They come in, they go into galleries, I show it to them, and they say, um, not exactly, no, I don't, we're happy about it. What else do you have? At that point, they can then expand their horizons, I expand mine, I bring out more stuff, they buy something else, so they come back. It, and they're, they're starting the process by looking at works of art. And now they have seen multiple JPEGs of similar works. Their advisor has told them and sorted them and graded them. They've come by with certain level of expectations. And even if they love it, there's still the window is now much wider. Great, I can contact you anytime. Maybe I'll make a deal if someone else is uh, hot for it. But the, there's no sense of, um, you know, uh, this window, you're here today, let's get the transaction done. It's sort of more fluid and then seems to open out the back well, end. I think, yes, I think it gives people, uh, to some, uh, to let's say, to new collectors, they have an idea that if they have enough money, they can get anything they want. They can order it. No, because an experienced collectors, experienced collectors actually know that, that they can't order it. And when you do call them with that one thing that for 10 years they've been banging on about, they'll come, they'll, they'll come right over. I don't want to say they say, yes, I'll pay whatever you want, but they will, they will know that now is the time to do it and not go back to a consultant and say, well, find something else like this so I can compare it, because they won't be able to. And then they'll say, well, I, I can't find this on Artnet. I can't find anything like this on Artnet. That's why it's this price, or, you know, because you, it's, it, uh, well, you're laughing, but, you know, Art, Artnet and, and, and statistics and algorithms and who's the top-selling artist now rules what used to be called the art business and is now misnamed the art market. Well, it, it, it's that sense of um, wanting to see the price it is uh, or value it is to others as opposed to, to you as a collector. That work that comes up that you've been pining for for 10 years, that doesn't trade often, it now just becomes a question of, the seller's expectations and how much money you're willing to spend. It's irrelevant what anyone else has spent on, on uh, the like thing because, you know, they, they're not you. They they're don't have your collection. You. They don't have your passions. They don't have your interests. They don't have your connoisseurship, your visual experience and, uh, and all. And there's assumption, as you sort of said earlier, that it's like uh, Amazon, that there's, there's lots of stuff out there and there must be a comparable somewhere. Yeah, I, 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 and, and uh, the, the fact is each transaction involves something that's different between a willing buyer and a willing seller, even at auction. Although auction often sells, they sell the same things sometimes over, over time. Um, so that's not a market. A market is when you have lots of things that are the same cars or widgets that are being sold maybe in different regions in different times and you can compare those markets because the product is exactly the same. This product is not the same. The other problem I have with um, indices is that 
um, slightly more than half of, of all art transactions take place in, in galleries or with private dealers. And what is sold at auction, which is slightly less than half, is what is available for analysis or for slicing and dicing when it comes to uh, information. I don't know of anybody who would be, I think, uh, I know little about it, a financial consultant who is going to advise somebody based on information which was less than 50% of, of an industry or what was going on. It's just... But it all, again, that goes back to it's the price to you as opposed to the price to everyone. For some people, that top price is cheap rather than dear. You know, there's the assumption that any auction ends with the guy pay, paying too much because he beat out everyone else, when in fact, if the auction ends with the thing that you wanted, you, you've, you've paid a, a good price by definition because it's the thing that you wanted. I have, I have many, many times been told by collectors when we've been looking at something, let's say, quite magnificent in their collection. And they say, I really, I paid much too much with this at the time. But in a couple of years, <laughs> it didn't matter. You know, you, you can, as my, my boss says, you can make the money back. You can't get, you can't get the painting back. You know, it's, it may hurt, it may really hurt, but a real collector takes the hit because they've got it. No, no one points to a blank space on the wall proudly and says, I didn't spend $20 million, so I don't have that, right? They say, I spent 25, and you know what? I'm really happy because I don't care what it's worth today. I'm never going to sell it. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, what we've been talking about, about encountering the work and uh, seeing it repeatedly and the sales process. Does that, do you encourage people and does that come into play? This idea of don't just walk in the room and uh, take five minutes, but, you know, I know sometimes when you sell things, work goes out on approval and you ask someone has to live with it for a little while, or they come back multiple times. I just want to bring back what we've just been discussing to the themes in your book. I, you know, I spent 16 years in the auction business, 20 before that as a dealer, and now, believe it or not, 17 years since then as a dealer. The process is... So you, you'll get the hang of this someday. Yeah, I will. I will. The, um, the process is very different. Um, yes, there are very, very privileged auction buyers who might be able to get a painting in their home overnight before, before an auction sale. But boy, you really, I mean, you'd have, you have to be top dog to do that. So at auction, you, you, if, you're a, if you're a major buyer, you may get called in well before the sale to see one thing or another. And yes, you might have a private room and you may be able to sit there. But auctions depend upon global participation. Um, there are many people who bid for very expensive items who have never seen them. Um, uh, there are people who saw them who were taken you know, around on a preview uh, by a specialist 
who takes them wall to wall, painting to painting, and sometimes they have interesting things to say, and sometimes they have lines they filch from the catalog. I know this because I used to do this. I used to write the lines, or I plagiarized the lines, and then I trotted them out. You know, so, okay. I, I don't want to denigrate the auction process, but I will. what I will promote is the client. Um, okay, I had a call. I had a call from a an Asian friend of mine who was working with uh, a new Asian cl uh, uh, client. And, and, and she said, I know you have this particular work of art. She said, I, can I bring, my client has come, is arriving in New York, they'll be here for just a week. Can they come? Can they come and see it? I said, well, well of course they can come and see it. That's, what, what, that, that's actually what we do. You know, we're a shop. You come in. She said, well, but they have four children, you know, and, and, and they're young. I said, fine, you know, bring it on, okay? So anyway, she arrived on time with a young couple who had two children and the wife's sister came, who actually lived here, who had another two children. And, um, and actually, we were in this very room, and we're looking at the painting, and showed them other paintings. And the kids were taking photographs with their iPhone, and um, that we were having lots of cross-conversations, backwards and forwards. I mean, I think, I think they spent two hours here, okay? Very nice people. It was slightly chaotic, you know, um, and I, we, price was mentioned, but there was no real negotiation, okay? So but I thought, okay, that's not, that was a nice visit. You know, I got to look at it a bit more because I also get to see things when I'm showing them. Um, so, and then I got a call two hours later from 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 the intermediary and 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 within half an hour uh, I'd spoken to the owner and and we had we had a sale and then I get um, I have follow up I got thank you cards from the kids written rather like letters to Santa I got a photo I got uh, uh, selfies taken with the work of art once they got it home. I mean, this is this is engagement. This is the whole dang family in on it, enjoying it. Is this for prestige? Is this for investment? Is it? Well, I don't care what it's for. The point is, it was a social occasion which I found, you know, uh, enjoyable, you know, and so much more real than firing off uh, uh, images to people who are going to show them to people who are going to show them to somebody who might be a rich person in Russia or not, you know, which, frankly, I don't do that. But, but that's the, the way the business seems to be rolling. <coughs> well, that's, you also describe what is most likely the way they will experience the art in their living room with guests over and kids and uh, you know there may be quiet times where they're reverential in front of the painting by themselves yeah. there may be yeah. times when they are emotionally troubled that it's a lifeline or other times when they're excited that they get yeah. associations but you're you're advocating 
fusing the two, yeah. that the, 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 the art and life uh, are uh, uh, intertwined yeah. rather than this semi-religious aspect we have towards yeah. it where, you know, our art needs to be, you know. It becomes part of the furniture of your life. And, and, and you can either enjoy it because it, it, it's always there on the stairs, or after a few years you can move it around and say, oh, I didn't realize that, I really, that's nice, you know, I, we, we'd been, take it out of the maid's room or whatever, you know, put it in the living room. In my first book, I talk about the woman who told me very, very accurately, she said, I always go into people's bedrooms when I visit their homes because I want to see what they really like to look at. Or, or, or the, the small works they put in their bathrooms. And, yes, uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that is probably a great place to end uh, with bathos, <laughs> as, as it were. Uh, before we go, let's get you a few more Instagram followers. Your Instagram ham handle is? Is uh, um, at Michael Alistair Findlay. Perfect. A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R, which is my true middle name. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 